Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om, lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. And reach us through and through ourselves, and evermore protect us from ignorance by thy sweet, compassionate face. So my subject this morning is life in the afterworld. And we're going to be talking about life after death and about the journey of the soul after the death of the flesh and blood body. And those of you who are students of this Vedanta philosophy know that the death of the gross physical body is not the end of the story. That the story goes on and John Brown's body lies moldering in the grave, but the soul goes marching on. So uh, at the time of death, the soul, the jivatma, the subtle body and the causal body withdraws its powers from the physical gross body. Just as it withdraws its powers, powers means its pranas, are withdrawn from the physical body, just as a a tortoise may, if you tap on its shell, it will withdraw its limbs. And withdrawing that vital powers, it uh, separates itself from the gross physical body. And at that time, the soul, that is ourself, feels a sense of freedom, a sense of release. He notices, certainly, all that he's no longer in a material, physical body, and yet he still has a body. It's a much lighter, shining, ethereal, spiritual body. In Sanskrit, it's called the sukshma sharira, that is the subtle body. And... At that time, the soul, we can imagine, withdrawing from the body, looks down upon himself lying there on the, at where he has died. Maybe he sees his relatives seated around the deathbed, uh, weeping and grieving. And uh, yet he sees from a distance that he is separated from that body and from that form. 
The soul naturally continues to feel a sense of attraction, hovering kind of around in that area for some time. Why? Because we're still attached to the body. And the body is like a, a magnet that draws the mind and the consciousness towards it. And it's in order to break that, uh, that attachment, that lifelong attachment to our physical body, this is why the Aryan races, that is the Greeks, and the ancient Indian peoples used to practice cremation. And uh, of course, in Judeo-Christian tradition, it's considered to be um, bad testimony to burn the dead body. The body is considered to be maybe like a seed. You plant the seed because you expected that you are the body. You plant the seed, the seed will rise again at the, at the end of time. But in the Indian tradition, they practice cremation in order to sever that connection of attachment so that the soul can immediately begin its long journey upward into the afterworld. And we can imagine that the soul, well, the soul cannot remain. It, why does it begin its journey? Because it, it can't remain on this gross physical plane. That is, in the subtle body, immediately the soul will begin to feel a sense of pressure, a sense of stress. It's just like a, a, a deep sea diver who's down in the depths of the, of the, of some, of the water, were to somehow be separated from his heavy diving suit, we can imagine that he would feel the pressure of the atmosphere. So he looks up, he sees there the light shining through the water, he begins swimming upward towards that light. Similarly, the soul begins to gravitate now, looks upward and begins to uh, leave this world this gross physical plane and move into a higher world. Immediately after death, they say that there is a time of judgment. And uh, all religions teach that after we die, that uh, there will be a judgment day and that a time will come when we will be confronted with our past deeds and face some kind of reward or punishment. In Indian mythology, there's a similar idea. And after death, the soul uh, very soon meets up with the Lord of Death. His name is Yama. He's called the Dharma Raja because he's the He's the Lord of the underworld, the Lord of death, and he's also the master of dharma, of establishing righteousness and um, harmony in the moral world. This figure of Yama, it's a fearsome figure when you see it as portrayed in the Hindu iconography. He's got a kind of a red eyes, red body. And uh, he holds a rope, he holds a noose in his, in his hand, like Ganesha, the god, the elephant-headed god. You've seen him, he holds a rope, and the rope has a noose. The noose is there to 
lasso kind of the soul and to draw the soul um, away from the gross plane. So at that time, the soul, so it is said, we're told in the scriptures that the soul meets up with the Lord of death, Yamaraja. At that time, we notice that the, uh, the Yama, he has around his neck a, a mirror. And the soul, that is the Jivatma, we look into that mirror, and there in the mirror is seen all of the story and the history of our past life. And uh, we can imagine that at that time, the soul, he looks there in that mirror and he sees maybe that he has done many good deeds in his life. He's made a lot of progress. He's uh, moved forward in his spiritual life and uh, he's lived a good life. And so seeing that, just as we look in the mirror, maybe they remember what we did today, what we did yesterday, feel, he feels good about himself, maybe. And so saying, he can relax now for a little bit. Maybe he resolves now to rest for a while, to take a vacation. On the other hand, we can imagine that another soul, on that same occasion, looks into that same mirror and uh, sees that his life has been a great waste. Maybe he looks, he sees all of those sins and all of those crimes that he committed. He's overwhelmed with guilt and depression. And so saying at that time, now you see what we're talking, we're talking about the soul. We're talking about ourself freed from all of our physical lower passions. And that means that you see clearly. Your mind is that you have clarity of mind and you're kind of in a we could say in a, in a higher, you're in the higher mind. And so you, when you see, you can see and make decisions much more, much more clearly and efficiently than when we're dragged down by the senses and the physical. So we can imagine that that soul looks into the mirror, seeing that he's lived a very unproductive life or a very evil life, becomes vexed and angry with himself and decides to resolves to discipline himself. So saying, by his karma now, he's oriented to go, go up or to go down, to go into the higher worlds or to go into the lower worlds. You can see them, the, 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 the metaphor here or the symbolism here is, is that when we talk about judgment, when we talk about, it, it, it's not God who judges us. Rather than in the philosophy, it's we who judge ourselves. And it's we who, did, we who have, by, on the vir, by the virtue of all of our past karma, that is our self-conscious volitional actions, we, look, we come to a time, we get to a point where we have in retrospect a time of clarity. We judge ourselves, and in the light of our own higher destiny and our own higher purpose, we decide uh, where, uh, how our journey will unfold and continue. All religions uh, believe in the existence of heavenly worlds. And 
according to Hindu eschatology also, there are heavenly worlds. Now I'm supposed to try to sell you on this, okay? I'm the salesman here of, the, of the, uh, this philosophy. Let me see if I can convince you of the, uh, giving you the old fashioned orthodox presentation. And uh, according to Indian mythology, there are heavenly worlds. There's seven worlds above, Bur, Bhuva, Swaramahar, Janastapasatya, seven worlds. The highest of these worlds, three highest of these are, are spiritual worlds. That is, they're planes of meditation where great saints and sages, the highest of those may be called Brahmaloka, where the creator of this world, that is Brahma, resides. In the lower heavens are worlds that are much like our own, except for the fact that in those worlds, we don't make karma. You see, it's this, it's only on this, in this world, on this earth, or on an earth-like gross plane. It doesn't have to be the planet Earth, but it's only in this plane, that is, it's called the karma bhumi, that as, as moral agents, we, we, uh, we grow and we evolve. So in these heavenly worlds, so these are worlds of great reward and uh, for good deeds. And uh, we don't make any karma in those worlds. And in that way, they differ from this world. Corresponding to these seven worlds above, there are seven worlds below. And uh, these are the, we could call the, infernal worlds, the hells, which are described in, well, which are derived from the visions of the saints and the sages, which are described in the scriptures, which are uh, portrayed by great poets, like, the, like Dante's Inferno, uh, which are portrayed by great artists, like Hieronymus Bosch, you know, he has that the triptych, the Garden of Earthly Delights. It's a it's a painting which is in three parts, and there we have a graphic description of the torments of the hell realm. And uh, this morning, I think we'll just focus on heavens. So we're not going to talk. We're not going to talk about the hell realms and describe them in detail. Uh, we're not going to talk about any individual detail. We're going to, I'm trying to give you kind of a rationale for whether or not you believe in this or not. Now, uh, therefore, our question can be, do these places exist? That's our question. And uh, so somebody's going to ask you, do you believe in heaven? Do you believe in hell? All right, so here's, here's, here's the answer. Do you... Uh, do heaven and hell exist? Well, as with all metaphysical claims, that is, do you have a soul? Does God exist? Is there a great law of karma? Is there, does the universe move in, in cyclic movements, uh, cyclic, uh, uh, cyclic patterns? Is there a power that creates this world? Um, these are all metaphysical questions. 
They cannot be answered. We can't discover the answers, answer to these questions by, uh, by observation with the eyes of the flesh. We can't, uh, we can't arrive at any conclusion as these questions by using the eyes of the, of the mind. That is by, by re reasoning, by, by uh, inference. So since perception and inference are out, therefore, where do we get the, where do we get our information about these soup, the, these, these transcendental truths? They come to us from the scriptures. So we ask, well, what is the evidence for all that we're going to be talking about uh, this morning, these heavens and hells? It comes from our, it comes from scriptural texts. And the students of Vedanta, we have, we believe in the, we have, that is, we have shuddha, that is a positive mental attitude towards the, 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 the scriptures. Why? Because the scriptures are themselves derive their authority from the realizations of great saints and sages and mystics. And because we believe that mystics and saints and sages can have such transcendental experiences, and that they can record them in the, in the sacred books we call the Upanishads, the Vedas, the, of the scriptures of the world. Therefore, we, uh, our subject, uh, their verbal testimony, it's called Shabda Pramana. It's a way that we know things. How do, it's called Shabda Pramana means you know things in different ways. Some things you know because you see them. Some things you know because they're logically uh, through deduction or induction. Other things you know because some authority person told you. That's how we get most of our knowledge, is Shabda Pramana. People we regard with authority have told us some things, and therefore we believe it. So uh, it's our trust and faith in scripture, and I don't like to use the word faith, but we use the word shraddha, in scripture then that distinguishes our discussion this morning from mere imaginary speculation. But after having said that about the scriptures, we can say that we can also use some valid reasoning uh, not to prove the existence of these worlds, but to support and corroborate the teaching of the scripture. For example, as students of Vedanta, we believe, and we've discussed in great detail on other occasions, the great law of karma. Karma means whatever you reap, that, whatever you sow, that shall ye also reap. It's a great universal law of balance that works in this world. And according to that great law, that all the things which you have done, moral actions which you have done, which are positive, which are good, will be rewarded. All those things which you have done, which are negative, which are self-destructive, will eventually be punished in the sense not in the sense that you're, because we believe that you're punished not for your sins, but by your sins. And we've discussed in great detail how this happens, the psychodynamics of how your karma works to not only effect, not only transform your character, but immediately to go around and cycle around like a boomerang and return to you again after a delayed period of time. That doctrine 
requires as a logical entailment this uh, attentive acceptance of this, this uh, teaching of the afterworlds. That is, of the heaven and hells requires that we posit the existence of such worlds in order to maintain the moral economy of the world in which we live. And uh, what does that mean? That means, let's see, let's, let us say that in the great uh, gambling casino of life, sometimes problems arise. Now let's say that you are, let's say, imagine a person who is in a, is in such a place. He's very lucky. He wins and he wins. And he wins all the money. He breaks the bank. And at that point, there's a problem. Because if the bank has, if he's won all the money, then the rest of the players, the, the, the play, everything has to shut down. And the game can't continue. Therefore, in, in the world of the, of the gambling world, how do they handle that? Well, they'll, they, they'll negotiate with the gambler to take your, can you take your winnings maybe on an installment plan? So we don't, we'll give them little by little, we'll give you. Okay, that's one way you can do. Another way, if he insists on taking the whole thing, okay, well, they have insurance company. The insurance company will come in, uh, that is an outside, it's not a closed system. It's an open system because there's something outside of that casino which will come in and will pay that, that gambler off so that the rest of the players can continue to play. The game can continue. And in this analogy, the, uh, the heavens and hells, they're like the insurance company. They allow for the moral economy of the world to continue to function. That is the law of balance on this plane to function without being disrupted. We can use also some analogical reasoning for the existence of these heavenly worlds. Uh, heavens are like vacation resorts. Hells are kind of like prisons. And uh, we can see that if you work hard for the whole year, that certainly you deserve, it's reasonable that you would go off and leave this place and go off on vacation. And if you were to commit great crimes, it's reasonable that you'll probably go off and spend time in some prison. And uh, what if you worked hard all year and uh, you wanted to go off on vacation and you were told there aren't any vacation places in the world. You just have to continue working. And you think, well, yeah, that's not fair. That's not the way it should be. So like that we can see analogous reasoning, maybe that it's kind of psych psychologically reasonable that there should be worlds, different, different world spaces that afford some different experiences. And, well, I'm just trying to give you some arguments here for the, some reasonable arguments, not derived from scripture uh, by, see this Vedantic system, it's a system, it's, it's, it, it's platonic in its form. It's a, it is a, it's a form of rationalism. It begins with axioms that are, are, are known by intuition. And from those axioms, it deduces 
a whole system. So let's look here. Um, it kind of uh, the point the point I'm making is is that this it's a, this this doctrine of the he- existence of these heavens and hells it stands to reason in addition in addition to having the scriptural uh, uh, source and reference being derived from the scriptural from the realizations of the saints and sages it also stands to reason that is this is not an irrational doctrine it's not proved by reason but it it uh, it, it's reasonable. Not only that, it answers a lot of, it's a good theory. It's a good theory, it answers questions. For example, the, are, there's an argument from like population growth. Let's say, let's say that you have a population. Okay, you started with Adam and Eve, right? You got two people. Then you have four people. Then you have six people. Then you have eight people. Or what is it? Geometrical progression. To pretty soon you have millions and, and billions of people. And we could ask ourselves, well, let's say you had Adam and Eve. Those are two souls. Okay, God created Adam and God created Eve. But then what about all these two, what about all the two, four, eight, sixteen? Where did those souls come from? You're not allowed, according to Vedanta philosophy, you're not allowed to say that God created each one as he goes along. You're not allowed to say that. And so we have to ask then, where did all these souls come from? Where did all these people come from? And uh, if you're invited to some home or dinner party, you come in, you sit down, you meet the host. One or two people are sitting with you there in the, in the living room. And two more people come in. Another two people come in and join you. Four people come in. But you're sitting right near the front door. No, these people are, are uh, uh, no, no new guests have arrived. Where did all these people start coming from? Well, you have to assume that they were in another room. When you arrived, they must have been in another room. Or they must have been upstairs. Or they must have been downstairs. And uh, little by little, they're gathering together in that place. And so it's reasonable to assume that in addition to that room in which you are sitting, there are other rooms in the house. And that those rooms are probably similar to where you are today. So you have to think, you have to think about, uh, forget about heaven and hell, just think about people who, uh, when someone dies. When a person dies, we believe, I think, as students of Vedanta, we believe that when you, quote, die, you just, your, your, your gross body is like a suit of clothes that's left behind. Now the subtle body continues the spirit soul continues to live in some sense. And when we think, well, how is that? Well, we don't know what it is, but we believe that 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 soul is somewhere. We can't see, we can't hear it. We, We don't have no communication. And yet we believe that all these souls which are dying are somewhere. Now, where are they? Well, they must be in some place. They might, that is, and if we think, okay, if soul number one, two, three, four, five, all go, they must gather together. And if they gather together, what do people do? Well, they talk. You see, the, the, the idea is this. Yariveha, tadamutra, tadamutra, tadanveha. Whatever is here, this is, the, this is the law of mental science. Whatever's here is there. Whatever is there is here. The principles that happen here, we're all sitting together here. And we'll talk with each other. We see each other. 
Similarly, it is going to be in the other world, only in some way that maybe we can't, uh, the same thing is going to happen. People are going to be together. They're going to, they're going to intermingle. They're going to communicate. And they're going to begin to form naturally into some kind of a social system, a hierarchy. All this kind of, kind of a reasonable, it's kind of a reasonable projection of our first assumption, which I think most of us accept intuitively, that those beings do exist. They're not isolated. The divine spirit souls who've departed this world are not just isolated, walking alone, lost in darkness out there. So, well, the point is, is, is that, um, well, let's ask this question. Where are, where are these worlds? Let's say that we've, we, the question was, do these worlds exist? Let's say that we accept tentatively that these worlds exist. Uh, then we can ask the question, where are these worlds? And, uh, well, in the pre-rational, pre-scientific mind, that is in the, all of the, that we know about cultures and, and religions down through the ages, oftentimes these heavens and the hells, which are intuited by thinkers, in the pre-scientific mind, they are located either in the sky or somewhere down in the earth. And if you see the paintings of the medieval times, you see the saints, they're looking up in the sky like this. There's heaven up there. And they're, or they're, they're like Dante. They go down through a hole in the earth and uh, goes down through the hole. That's why they call it the pole. It's not the North Pole. It's the North Hole. It's a hole. You go in there and you go down, down, down into the infernal world. That was Dante. So like that, the, these worlds are considered to have some kind of a geographical location. Now, many modern theologians, of course, don't accept it. So that's very kind of a pre-modernist, primitive way of thinking about it. Rather, if you read a modernist theologian, maybe they'll say that, well, it's not like that. It's more these, these worlds, these heavens and hells are more uh, metaphorical. They're allegories for life on the earth. And we can say, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense because we can think of uh, someone, for example, uh, we, we can think of Shangri-La, you know, a lost city in the Himalayas where they, everything is perfect and beautiful. You go there, it'd be just like in heaven, living there in Shangri-La. Or we can imagine, uh, uh, as some writers like uh, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre or something who did you read that play, No Exit, the play in which the people are in the room there. This is a hell on earth. Joseph Conrad, the heart of darkness, writers and poets have described conditions and situations on the earth in, in our life where we can create a hell for ourselves. These are heavens and hells as it were. See, once upon a time, a a uh, disciple asked his guru, what is heaven and what is hell? And the guru says, yes, come with me. Let's take a walk. And so they walked over Hill and Dale and they came to an open meadow. And there the guru points, look over there in that meadow. And there in the meadow, the disciple, he looked and he saw that there were trees. Under the trees, there were tables, big banquet tables, which were spread with delicious foods that were prepared for a great feast was prepared. And there were many people there in the field around the tables, 
but all of them were weeping. And he looked and he see they were all weeping and crying because they had their, they had the, they had metal rods were on their arms so that they couldn't, they couldn't move their, they couldn't take the food, they couldn't put food in their mouth. And so they were like in a tantalus hell. And so the guru says, you see that? That's hell. And uh, so they continued on walking and they came over another hill, there's another meadow. Very similar to the one that was saw before. And the disciple looked out. There he saw the same trees there. Big banquet tables are all spread with delicious foods. And there are all the people gathered around the table. And they also had these rods in their, in their arms so that they couldn't bend their arms. But they were all laughing. And they were all happy because they were all feeding each other. And uh, the guru said, see, this is heaven. And so the disciple learned the lesson about heaven and hell. You see the allegory? Heaven and hell are not real places. They're just metaphors. Uh, they're allegories for life on earth. There are certain Western psychologists and Eastern idealists who tend to explain these heavens as subjective psychological states of mind. That is, the explanation given is that these accounts are psychological states, that these worlds are really dream worlds, and that when you die, you, you just start to dream. Usually such idealists maintain that this world is like a dream. See, in Vedanta, we don't believe that. But they believe this world is like a dream. And therefore, it makes sense that when you die, you go to sleep, and you, go, you dream up another world, and you go into that dream world. So that's a, <laughs> heaven is like another dream world. It's not any less real than this is, because it's a dream world too. But these are all modernist interpretations. And uh, Eastern thought, that is the Vedanta philosophy, or the Indian philosophy that we're talking about this morning, is not content with explaining away heaven and hell as a metaphor, with explaining it away, these places away, as uh, social metaphors for allegories for social conditions or by explaining them away as dream states or psychological states. Rather, they make the much stronger claim that uh, these are real objective places. And uh, the teaching is that there are different planes of reality, and that there are different dimensions or different world spaces. We think of space when we think, where are we today? We are in, we are in space and time. But according to Indian philosophy, there's three kinds of space and time. There's the Mahakasha, that is this world, 
which is the world of physical space, the world of sensibilia, where we use our senses and we see things, uh, we gain our knowledge through the through sensation. But then there is also the that's the mahakasha. Then there is also the chitta akasha, the mind space, the mental space. This is the world of of uh, intelligibilia. Then there's another space, which is a, that's a gross, subtle, that is, there's gross, subtle, and causal. The reality is not just a gross world. There's also a subtle world space. And there's a causal world space that's called the Chidakasha, where, where appear realities, transcendalia. And therefore, when you see in spiritual vision, you have a vision. A vision is not just a psychological thing, it's something you imagine. It's not like a dream. You actually see a, a god or goddess who actually exists external to your, to your individual consciousness. That is to say, the object of your perception in the causal world is the, are these are, are objects of transcendalia, that is transcendental entities. So uh, what we have here is a strong claim of a whole esoteric cosmology. And uh, there are worlds above. There's this world. And there are worlds above. And there are worlds below. That's why they speak in the scriptures of the three worlds. What are the three worlds? The world, that's the worlds above, this world, and the worlds below. These are the three worlds. The gross, the subtle, and the causal. So that those, those are the three worlds. Therefore, when we die, we... Uh, the teaching is that we do not fall asleep and start dreaming, and we do not go to some place in the sky or under the ground, but rather, when you die, where do you go? You don't go anywhere. You remain, that is yourself, your, your soul, remain, you remain where you are. You remain in the same place, as it were, only you enter into a new world space. You enter into a new dimension, into a new plane of existence. And thus you exist in the... Those are what are called the heavenly... In Sanskrit, they're called lokas. And when you read in the scriptures, you can read about these different world planes described in great detail, in, uh, in Indian and in Western occultism. Question we can ask, how, uh, let's assume that we go to, we die, and we were to go to um, such a world. You see, when the soul, when a person dies, according to the great law of reincarnation, when you die, it's possible that you are reborn again you know, if you believe in, I'm not arguing the doctrine of reincarnation, I'm just giving you one aspect of it this morning. But the idea, when well, you die, you may be re immediately reborn again. It depends on your karma. You may be, be ready to continue on your spiritual growth immediately by taking birth again in the karma bhumi, that is in this world. But the alternative, according to your karma, if the books still need to be balanced in such a way that they cannot be accommodated in this world, then you will journey to some higher or lower world. Question is, 
How long do you think that we would stay in such a world? How long do we have to stay there? Well, that depends on your karma. And it's a lot like talking when they talk here about hypothetical space travel. People go off and they're how long are they gone? Well, it's time is relative. And so it becomes almost meaningless to speak in terms of days or in terms of years. The essential thing to remember here in this regard, and this is the essential difference between the Indian conception of heavens and hells and the what we're acquainted with that is a Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, the essential difference is, is that they're not eternal. These world spaces and our time spent in this world are just like in this world. Remember, whatever is here is there. Whatever is there is here. So similarly, our life on this plane is limited time. Similarly, our life on that plane will be limited in time. And um, it has to be limited in time. Why is that? Because the heavens and the hells are part of the belief in the, the logic of the law of karma. And according to the law of karma, whatever you sow, that you shall also reap. Every self-conscious volitional karmic action that you do is finite. Therefore, any, any result of any action, it will be finite. And therefore, you cannot expect to live in a, in a world to, to get an infinite reward, as it were, in heaven for a, a finite deeds. Furthermore, heaven cannot be eternal because an eternal heaven would be a hell. And we know that by remembering the great uh, watershed of philosophical resource, and that is the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone episode in the Twilight Zone school. title of that episode was, It's a Nice Place to Visit. That's the title. And as, as it opens, there's a petty thief. Uh, his name's Rocky Valentine. He's just robbed a store and he stopped by the police and there's a gunfight in the streets there of New York City and he's shot down and he dies. Next thing he knows, as the story opens, he opens his eyes and he looks around. He's in a room. And it's a beautiful room. It's like a fabulous, luxurious hotel room. And he looked, he's never been in such a beautiful, so well appointed, has all the amenities that he can see. He pushes a button there and the, the curtains go back there. He sees a beautiful view. He gets up and he thinks, wow. He thinks, what is, what, what is it? And then he looks over the corner of his eye. He sees there's a, a man sitting there in the chair, big easy chair, big fat man. And the man looks at him and smiles. He says, hello. That I'm here to, to give you whatever you want. And uh, Rocky thinks, whoa, I just, I must, this is lots of, I must have died and gone to heaven. And this must be my guardian angel. And so he says, well, yes, he says, I am. I'd like to, kind of hungry. He said, I'd like to have something to eat. No sooner had he said a knock on the door, room service came in. Oh, they had a big, well, big food was laid out there. And he had a wonderful dinner. And the fat man asked him, "No." He said, "Well, so well, I'd like to, I'd like to go out on the town for a little while." He said, "Oh, no problem." He said, "Can I have something to wear?" "Oh, yes, just there's your closet. Walk in the closet. He's a beautiful closet. All these beautiful hand tailored suits, which fit you fit him perfectly." He puts one of those suits on. "Yes, let's go. Very good," says the fat man. "Let's go downstairs. We'll go down in the casino downstairs." "Oh, I like to play." 
So he goes down there and he bets money on one table and he wins. He goes to another table, he bets, wins. Every table he wins, he wins. First he's very excited, very happy. After about an hour though, he's a little suspicious. He goes to the table, he puts his money down, he bang, he wins again. And uh, well, he's there for a few hours later, he begins to become kind of boring, kind of tiresome. And then when he goes back to the room, Rocky Valentine, he addresses the, the fat man. He says, you know, I'm used to a life, of a really exciting life. You know, I like to win, lose, you know, adventure of, 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 of life. And he says, this is kind of boring. So I can, I, I, I can see everything, everything I want. It just happens so easily. I don't have to, I don't have to do anything for it. He said, I'm, I, don't, I don't think it's, this is going to work for me. I, need a, I, I think I'm going to try the other place. He points down, I think I'm going to try the other place. And then the fat man looks at him and he says, this is the other place. <laughs> so, well, what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is internal heaven would be hell. That is our pleasures in loud. Pleasure loses all its meaning. Pleasure is, is only pleasure because it's in a world of pairs that gains its meaning from being contrasted with its opposite, with pleasure and pain. And if there's only, if there's only, you can't con even conceive of the, uh, of the pleasure without the pain, that it's just defined by the pain, or the suffering, it has no existence apart from that condition. So this is something about the doctrine of the lokas, that is the worlds, the world spaces that exist in different planes of existence that exist uh, in addition to this, we see that there are certain similarities and differences between this doctrine and what we've learned from Judeo-Christian uh, writing and teaching. And uh, in the Indian conception, the diff big difference is, of course, is that these places are not eternal. These places are, uh, they exist, but they do not represent the ultimate destination of the soul. They're kind of like halfway houses, which are part of the cycle. And we may go there, we may not go there, depending on our karma, but at no time are they eternal. The ultimate goal of life is not to go to heaven, uh, but rather to gain liberation from the great cycle of transmigration. And in order to do that, we cannot remain in these heavenly worlds. Uh, we have to return. That is why, that's why we don't believe in angels, for example. Angels, if we define an angel as an immortal being who lives in heaven, then, uh, well, no. Why? That's because the, this is the karma bhumi. That is, it's only man who has moral consciousness and who can make decisions and who can, and who can make karma and thus to progress and evolve in, in, in your divine spirit soul. Therefore, however long we remain in heaven or however long we remain in the netherworld, we will return again to the karma bhumi to continue on in our spiritual uh, in a personal growth in our spiritual evolution. 
So that's the life in the afterworld. On some other occasion, we'll talk on the subject of how is the soul reborn? And uh, we'll continue our discussion of the uh, mysteries, the great mysteries of this great doctrine of reincarnation. Om Dio Hoshantihi Antariksha Hamshantihi Pritivi Hishantihi Apashantihi O Shadaya Shantihi Vanaspataya Shantihi Vishwe Deva Shantihi Brahma Shantihi Saravam Shantihi Shanreva Shantihi Same Shantiredhi Om Shantihi 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 Om peace is in heaven, peace is on the earth, peace is in the sky and in the waters. The herbs and plants and trees are full of peace. The gods are peaceful. May this eternal universal peace Enter our souls and beings. Om, peace, peace, peace be unto us all. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.